KYW Original Podcasts. This is a Flashpoint Extra. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University in Washington, D.C. He is a professor of history and international relations. He's a journalist and a New York Times best-selling author. Now, his book, Stamped from the Beginning, That Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, that book won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016. That win made Kenny the youngest author ever to win that award. He was just 34 years old. Now, earlier this year, Dr. Kendi, who earned his doctoral degree from the one and only Temple University, uh, published the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. So I had to call him out since he's a Temple owl. I had to call him up to find out more about his theory and what in the world being an anti-racist really is. So take a listen to his interview. Uh, Dr. Kendi, welcome to this Flashpoint Extra. Great to be on the show. And congratulations on your new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. That's, it's, it's very timely. Yes, I don't know whether that's good or bad, but it certainly is. <laughs> because we hear the terms racist, racism, non-racist. Uh, it's thrown around all the time. Um, we even, as I mentioned to you before we start recording, we did a show on the use of the term racist right before your book came out. But I had never heard of the term anti-racist. Could you describe what you mean when you use this term? Well, as you know, most Americans self-identify and, you know, to a certain extent are striving to be what they call not racist. And this term not racist really stems from the sort of phrase, I am not a racist. And people typically say, I am not a racist, when what? They're charged with saying or doing something that's racist. And Americans really across the ideological board and across history have been responding to charges of racism by saying, I am not a racist. And and when you really sort of hone in on the term not racist and the phrase, I'm not a racist, I've not been able to find a meaning for it other than a term of denial and other than a defensive sort of term. While anti-racist, like racist, has a very clear meaning. And so if racist if, if racists are people who express racist ideas or support racist policies with their actions or inactions, anti-racist support anti, anti-racist policies or express anti-racist ideas with their, their action. And anti-racist ideas connote notions of racial equality. Racist ideas connote notions of racial hierarchy. Anti-racist policies yield racial equity. Racist policies yields racial inequity, and there's really no in-between neutrality or, or not racist between the racist and an anti-racist. In, in my mind, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, to me, the, the, when you say anti-racist, it's almost like an act is more active than being not racist. Is that fair? Without question. And so I think many people who, who are not racist imagine that if you are doing nothing in the face of all of these racial inequities that are 
um, that you are essentially on the sidelines. Mm. But in reality, you're actually in the game because you're actually supporting by your inaction the persistence of, of racism. So, for instance, during the enslavement era, slaveholders did not want Northerners to do anything. <laughs> they just wanted them to just do nothing and allow slavery to continue to grow and persist and enrich them. And so doing nothing is, in fact, supporting the persistence of racism, while obviously anti-racists are clear-eyed in seeing the problem of, of racism and challenging it. And I just found that to be very, because it's like, so you almost, by being silent, you're actually, in a way, uh, or, or or being neutral in that way, you're actually supporting racism, and you yeah. have to be active in order to be anti-racist. Precisely. And it's just like somebody who chooses not to vote. They affect elections, just like the people who vote, too. I mean, you have people who are strategically trying mm. to get people to not vote, just like when people did nothing in the face of Jim Crow segregation, yeah. right? That allowed segregation and Jim Crow to persist. And, and, and that is really what racist ideas in particular and their production have intended all along. They want Americans to look out at racial inequities all around them and see normalities and see nothing that they have to challenge themselves against because, oh, it makes sense that black people are, are, are 40% of the incarcerated population because black people are so criminal. Like the racist idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a great transition because you, when you discuss the term anti-racist in the context of racism and how all people are impacted by racism in society and regardless of race, you can somehow be influenced by it and thereby adopt racist ideologies and stereotypes and therefore perpetrate racism or racist ideas and practices. In fact, you place yourself at the centerpiece of your book and explain how even as a person of color, you could be guilty of 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 kind of pushing racist ideologies. And I heard black people say this all the time. Well, it's impossible for me to be racist because I'm black or I can't be racist because I'm, you know, Latino or whatever. You have a different point of view on this issue. I do. And so typically white people say, their term of denial is, I am not racist. And typically, the term of denial for people of color is, I can't be racist. And the fact of the matter is, is that my sort of, when I think of definitions of racism and even anti-racist, I, I'm extremely focused on the victim. Mm. In other words, not who's saying that black people are lazy, but the fact that black people are being told that they're lazy. And, and if somebody is saying that racist idea, if we're focused on, on the victim, then, then essentially we can see how it doesn't matter who says it, right? They're still saying that black people are lazy. And that very person is seeing black people as the problem and not racism, which means they're not challenging racism, which means they're allowing racism to persist. So black people in a, and because and I thought about this Twitter, this it was like a Twitter war between um, Rep. Congressman Elijah Cummings and President Donald Trump. I mean, with Donald, President Trump calling, a, you know, Congressman Cummings a racist, and everybody was like, "Well, that's crazy. There's no way he could be racist." I, I'm not. It's not about whether or not he is or isn't. 
But it was just the fact that people of color were like, there's no way a black person could be racist. But if that person is an anti-racist, then it could possibly be the case that they are. Yeah. And so for me, that Twitter, that Twitter war, you had one person, the president, classifying this black city as an infestation, as this dirty place that is sort of infested. And, and there's a long history of, 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 of racist, uh, particularly white racist, imagining black spaces as these sort of safaris with animals. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and then another person, Representative Cummings, challenged that racist idea, right? And so he essentially, in that moment, was being an anti-racist because he was challenging the racist idea when simultaneously President Trump was being the racist. And so for me, I'm more focused on that. I'm more focused on the definitions. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm applying those definitions to, to anyone is, who is saying that there's something wrong with, with black people or anyone who is essentially supporting policies that are reproducing racial inequity. And so how do you know if you are racist versus an anti-racist? How, how can you evaluate yourself? Because hearing this could be a shock to some people's system. Sure. I think first and foremost, we can self-assess ourselves by something as simple as bringing up any sort of racial inequality. Mm. And so I mentioned earlier, um, black people are 40% of the incarcerated population in this country, even though we make up about 13% of the national population. There's only two explanations for that massive racial disparity either racist policies or black inferiority. Those are the only two explanations. And an anti-racist would say there's nothing wrong with black people. You have, you have dangerous and criminal-like black people, but you have dangerous and criminal-like white people and Latinx people and Asian people and Native people. Uh, and no one's ever proven that, that black people in particular, mm. and that something about blackness and black culture is causing black people to get arrested and incarcerated more. We have all sorts of studies that found that so many people, particularly over the last few decades, have been arrested for drug crimes. And black people are far and away more likely to be arrested for selling and consuming drugs, even though white people are more likely to sell drugs and consume drugs at similar rates. And so that, to me, speaks to the problem being racist policy. But others would say, you know what? Black people are in prison because their neighborhoods are dangerous, they're dangerous, they're criminal-like, and, and, and they're by nature violent. And that's a racist idea. And so you have to literally go through your way of thinking to identify the racial inequality or the, the stereotypes that you yourself uh, may have adopted just because you're part of this society which was built on racism. Um, it's almost like a self-evaluation, you know? It is. And, and, you know, in many ways, how to be an anti-racist was a self-evaluation. And mm-hmm. I literally sort of evaluated the ideas that I had internalized, you know, over the course of my life. And, and more specifically, how I was ultimately, re- ultimately able to realize that I thought that there was something wrong with black people. <laughs> and all of the different ways in which I thought that there was something wrong with black people or certain black groups, because I thought there was something wrong with with black poor people. I thought there was something wrong with black women. 
I thought there was something wrong with the black queer community. And, and I was reproducing the same ideas about those black groups as white people were saying, that I was calling racist. Um, and, and so I, you know, I had to sort of take that accounting of myself. So you yourself, had, you realized that you had been racist in some ways. Yeah. How was that? How was that? How did you feel when you when you had to admit that to yourself? I mean, I was ashamed. Uh, and I think I was ashamed mostly because, you know, I was raised in a, in a home that was a it was a progressive home. My parents were, you know, people who loved black people um, and who felt personally committed to the advancement of, of black people. Um and and so because of that, you know, upbringing, um, you know, I was ashamed. But at the same time, I grew up in the 90s. I came of age in the 90s. And if there was ever a decade, specifically where black youth were targeted as there's something wrong with black youth, it was the 1990s. You know, we were called super predators. Uh, even our, you know, our sort of older generation was scared of us when we walked by them on the street. They They thought that we needed to put up our pants. They thought, you know, black, black teenage girls were having, you know, too many babies. I mean, there were all of these ideas mm. that were circulating within the black community and being, you know, placed into the black community that I internalized. And, and I'm, we're around the same age. I came of age in the nineties as well. And I remember like teenage pregnancy was, you know, like it was like stereotypes against uh, young black girls when, um, black girls were not the only ones having children in the teen years, but it was like yeah. that was something that was placed on us, you know. Um, yeah, and yeah. What was interesting was so you know that you know black women and girls were were condemned for the growing percentage of of, of black children being born into single parent households. We've since found that that increase in the percentage of of of, of um, of black babies born into single parent households was not because teenage mothers were having more children. It was, it, it was not because single teenage mothers were having more children. It was because married two parent households and women in those two parent households were actually having less children. And so that's why the percentage in single parent households grew because the two parents were having less children. Mm. Um, at the same time, the single parent, uh, number was sort of stagnant. We also have learned since that all this attack on sort of young black fathers has actually proven itself to not be true. And that young black, I should say, black fathers are actually more likely to be in their kids' lives mm. than than the than other racial groups of fathers. But I didn't know that. Yeah. Instead, you just kind of take on these these ideas and repeat them, uh, or uh, you know, being a member of the media sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes the stories you read, the stories that are highlighted, um, underscore some of those racist ideologies. So I got to ask you, I mean, for some people, though, the idea of being an anti-racist is scary because it means you actually have to do something and possibly have to, you know, take a stand against something what do you say to those people who are like, oh, my God, this means, I, I, you know, I'm not an activist. I don't I, I don't want to start, you know, fights with people, you know, who get nervous about the idea of being of actively battling against racism and becoming an anti-racist. 
So I completely understand um, the fear that some people have in, in terms of being an active participant in this fight against racism. But I think what oftentimes we do is we focus on the potential sort of discomfort or harm that could come to us mm. if we resist. And we're less focused on the discomfort and harm that could come to us if we don't resist. And we should be looking out in America and seeing what happens or what has happened because we have so long resisted. We so long have not resisted as much as we should have racism. I mean, look at America right now. This is a product. Um, the only reason why this current president is in office is because of voter suppression is because there's so many Americans who believe white people are the main victims of, 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 of racism, you know, is, 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 and, and is because of gerrymandering, um, is because of the rise of, of white supremacists. And, 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 and we, of course, so many people are, are going to schools and work concerned about whether there's going to be uh, somebody who mass shoots them. That's a product of racism. And so for me, you know, Either we're going to be uncomfortable while we challenge um, racism, or we're going to sit on our couches and be uncomfortable because we know one day we'll be the victim if we're not already of racism. Yeah. Yeah, because it's at the point. And one of the, I mean, this this book, as I mentioned, when we first started talking is very timely, so were you were you sort of motivated by all the things that were happening? Why did you feel that we as a society in this country need to take things from being from a neutral space to a more active space at this point right now? So yeah, I started writing how to be an anti-racist um, sort of weeks uh, after Trump was elected. And obviously, people were many people were very um, were, were were sapped of hope. Um, other people were trying to to figure out how this all happened. And um, I, at the same time, I think many Americans were finally sort of smacked in the face with how pervasive and powerful racism still is. Mm. And so, in many ways, many Americans were smacked um, awake. And and really, it was those Americans who who were awakening, who were then looking for a way out of this muck that America has been sort of stuck in, really since our founding, is one of the things that really inspired me to to write this book. Really, the people asked me to write this book because I was, you know, I was I was speaking on Stand from the Beginning, my last book, and which was a history of racist ideas and also anti-racist ideas. And and people were like, you know, that anti-racist stuff, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. And, you know, how can I be an anti-racist? Because people were really serious, you know, and I think Americans, there are certain segment of Americans who, who finally have completely realized how lethal racism has always been, and it certainly is right now. And I think they're striving to, to find a way out. And, and I, I think anti-racism is our only way out. Yeah. And so is that what you hope people take from this book is, um, you know, what, you know, a roadmap to, to getting out of this? Precisely. And, you know, we it everyone has a different roadmap because everyone's in a different sort of place and space. 
um, and everyone has a different interest and passion and you know, but certainly the basic sort of concepts of, of seeing racist power and policy as the problem, of, of being a part of that force that is challenging it and, and seeking to replace it with, with anti-racist power and policy, you know, that is certainly the, the, the mission and the voice, I should say, of the, and the point of, you know, of the book and, and encouraging people that we, once we lose hope, once we lose hope that we could build an anti-racist America, a racist America will be guaranteed because it's not going to be inevitable. Like we have to fight for it. Yeah. And, you know, as we get ready to wrap this up, I mean, what is your vision? What would an anti-racist society look like? Well, an anti-racist society wouldn't be perfect. I mean, it wouldn't all be in heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but one thing that would be exist is that there there would be anti-racist policies. And if we have anti-racist policies in place, then we're not going to have racial inequities. And and if we're not if we don't have racial inequities, then we're not going to have racist policies justifying those inequities. Which meaning we're going to sort of look out at all of the, the sort of the diversity um of this of this country and and not see groups that are better or worse than us. We're not going to be seeking to civilize or develop different people. We're going to be seeking to learn different people. And fundamentally, if we if we eliminate racism, then we would also have to eliminate all of the bigotries that reinforce racism, because racism is deeply connected to 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 systems and bigotries that create economic inequality, gender inequality inequalities in sexual orientation, ethnicity, and, and so forth. And, and so really, this is part of a larger fight to create an equitable world where we literally would have equal opportunity. And it literally would be like no individual would, would, would basically have a leg up on another. We truly have a meritocracy, which basically continuously claim that we have to justify why white people are superior. Yeah, that sounds like a beautiful society <laughs> day by day, brick by brick. Uh, maybe if we all take on a more anti-racist approach, we can do that. And you'll be in Philadelphia on September 3rd at Penn Bookstore. Yes, yes. We're excited to have you. Um, Six o'clock, Penn Bookstore, 3601 Walnut Street. And uh, you were actually got your, your doctoral uh, degree here in Philadelphia and I got my master's at Temple as well. Um, so uh, Temple Owl, so you'll be back. One of your favorite things about Philly? Yes, and I actually talk about Philadelphia in the book because, you know, a lot of it is personal narrative and some of that personal narrative happens in uh, in North Philadelphia where I lived. I actually lived my intersection of Allegheny and, and, and North Broad. Um, and I talk about um, my living there as well as, of course, my time as a graduate student uh, at Temple. Wonderful. Well, we'll, we look forward to having you. We'll include a a link. Uh, Dr. Kendi, so, you know, congratulations again. How to be an anti-racist. He will be here in Philadelphia September 3rd at 6 o'clock p.m. uh, at Penn Bookstore at 3601 Walnut Street. We look forward to having you here back in Philadelphia, Dr. Kendi. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. 
This has been a Flashpoint Extra. Flashpoint is KYW News Radio's weekly public affairs show. It airs every weekend on 1060 a.m. on your radio dial. And it comes on at 9.30 p.m. on Saturdays and Sunday morning at 8.30. So you can subscribe to Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content like this extra. You can find us on the Radio.com app, the Apple Podcast app, or any podcast flat, uh, platform. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. If there's something in your community that has you hot under the collar, let us know. And we'll walk you through the flames. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. Mine is Cherry Greg. And thank you because you're part of the Flashpoint fam. So we really appreciate you listening and subscribing to our podcast. We work really hard and we really, really care about the community. So until next time, I'm your host, Cherry Greg. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.